I, I've really been looking forward to this, um, this series as I've read and studied. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if it, it becomes, when, when every book of the Bible becomes your favorite, at some point that word loses its meaning. Um, man, I have really just grown to appreciate Hebrews and, and just the, the author's intent. So we are going to be there today, Hebrews chapter 1, so go ahead and open your Bible there as you're turning, getting settled there. I just want to give, give a couple of thoughts before we, um, before we dig in. So a couple of just pieces of information. I put this out. Uh, there's a, a post on Realm. If you're on Realm, you were able to potentially see this. Uh, just, some introduce, just to introduce it, just to give you some background information about it. Uh, first, one of the things I would just emphasize, we don't know exactly who wrote it. Uh, there are a lot of people that are going to tell you who they think wrote it. And I do have an opinion, but I'm not going to stand up here and, and, and give you all the reasons why I think a particular person wrote it. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about it. This has been discussed a long time throughout church history. Uh, in fact, there's, there's even uh, origin right around the, he lived in the late hundreds into the early 200s. Uh, he even said all that long ago, that during that time, only God knows who wrote um, Hebrews. Uh, we don't even really know exactly who it was written to uh, in that uh, the title that is uh, often attributed to it, it it's, it's uh, to the Hebrews, um, is in the oldest manuscripts, but not in all manuscripts. And so not everyone's certain or convinced However, when you read it and you look at the subject matter, it seems clear that this was written to, to likely to, to Jewish Christians, more likely to Jewish Christians than maybe saying Paul wrote it. We don't know. He may have. could have been Barnabas. could have been Apollos. Here's what we know. As we read through this book, as we study through this book, it is all about Jesus. Over and over, we are going to see Jesus exalted. We are going to see the author of Hebrews seeking to point the people he's writing to, to Jesus. He's going to seek to show them that, his, that Jesus is greater. That's why we, that's why we titled the series we, the way we did, because he is seeking to show Jesus as supreme and sufficient, that we don't need another avenue to God, that we don't need, that there is no other way, that this is God's greatest act in all of history uh, and, and so as we work our way through it, while we won't be able to de- definitively say um, who wrote it, and we won't definitively be able to say who it was written to, we have much to gain. As a people whose, as, as the old hymn goes, as, as a people whose hearts are prone to wander to leave the God we love, right? As this people still today, as we read Hebrews, we will be reminded, do not take your eyes off of Jesus. He is the supreme and sufficient Savior. He is greater than any other offering that we could put forward as, as, a, as, as a way of salvation, as a place to look for joy, as a place to find peace. In, in everything and in every way, Jesus is greater. And that's ultimately one of the, my great hopes for us as we study through this book in a time that we've already been enduring. Uh, lots of... Um, Tension, lots of uncertainty, people from every standpoint. I have a conversation almost every week, at least once, almost every week about a a particular personal view on some 
issue based off of something someone has heard in the news. And, and it's being received as if it is truth. And yet I can point to the, the conversation I had the previous week that that same, that same conversation was referred to from the exact 180 degree opposite perspective and that person brought it to me as if it was the truth. I, I was standing on a treadmill in Planet Fitness when I first realized what a dangerous place we were in and uncertain times we were in as I was looking on, I wasn't on a treadmill, it was like an elliptical, but Anyway, I was exercising. Let's just go with that, right? Like, I'm trying to exercise, and I look up, and there's these TVs in front of me. CNN is here, and Fox is here, and they're talking about the same exact circumstance, the same exact event, and CNN is selling it as doomsday. We are in trouble, and Fox is going on about what a great day it is. Who do we believe? Where do we look to for hope and confidence and certainty? The author of Hebrews is as relevant today as he has ever been. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And so in this season, over this summer, for the next 20-ish or so weeks, we will have this opportunity to see Jesus exalted, to see him raised up and put and presented from, in front of us every week, to see him in his greatness. And I don't know of a better thing to do for a church for God's people. We're going to start today with the opening four verses that set the stage for us. And so before I get too excited and just go on, I'm just going to read, we're going to pray, and then we will dig in. So Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let's pray. Father, You sent your son to reveal yourself. You sent your son to to show his greatness, to reveal your glory. So today I pray that as I preach, you'll do more than I can. And that you will do what you intend to do and have always intended to do through this passage and through this book as we study it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Of all the ways that God has spoken in history, of all the ways that God has spoken in history, Jesus is his greatest word of all time. We've been given the final, definitive word on the root of all of our problems, on all of our struggles. In him, in Jesus, we have forgiveness of sins. We have reconciliation to God. We have the ability to know the one who created us. We have ability to know the one who holds all things together by the power of his word. Only in him can we know the joy of eternal life and, and, and not at some point in life, but starting right now. Only through him can we know the peace that passes understanding of all the ways that God has spoken in history. Jesus is his greatest word, the greatest word of all time. But yet, but yet, often, 
he is not the central topic of our conversations. Just consider the conversations and the things you speak about with your brothers and sisters in Christ. Is Jesus on the tip of your tongue and the central topic of your conversation? Not saying he's never. Not saying he's not. I have lots of conversations with Christian people. And even I have to confess. If I don't intentionally go there, many of those conversations would never go there. We talk a lot about what's happening in our life. We talk a lot about the circumstances we're dealing with. We talk a lot about what we think about a particular issue. And if people would just do this thing, it would fix their problem. We talk a lot about how it's not going the way we think it should. How often is he central to everything we think and everything we say? So generally speaking, we're, we're always looking. Generally speaking, I know this, this is not just just us, right? I, I, I understand this. This is the reality of the world we live in. Generally speaking, we're always looking for a better word and a better way. We look for a way that suits our interests and feels right according to our little perspectives of the world. And this is, this is what I think. This is the way I think it should be. We judge right and wrong based on our beliefs. We, we think about, we think about uh, how it feels to us, how, how it emotionally causes us to interact and react. Generally speaking, we look for solutions that are, that are more specific to the problems we face. You have a problem at work, you don't like your job, go find another one. You're not happy, and, and, and this is not us as a church, so don't, don't take this, but, but broadly speaking, the culture would say you're not happy in your marriage, get out of it. You're not happy with the people that you're surrounded by? Find a new group of people. <laughs> I don't mean to be too confrontational with this, but it's just popped in my head. I feel like I need to say it as if they're the problem. You get that, right? Like We're looking for this solution of a new circumstance, a new, a new situation, a, a new way to surround ourselves. And, and what we're saying is that what we need is another answer for peace, for joy, for satisfaction, for hope, and for all the things we long for in our life. I recently heard a pastor speaking about the racial tensions we face in America, which are real. Don't, don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. Which are real? He says, a couple of years ago, he says, this is a gospel issue. And I agree. This is a gospel issue. And he turns around in about a year and he says, but we can't just gospel this issue. The gospel's not sufficient to fix this problem. It's a man I've learned from and appreciated and I still pray for and I believe he's a man of God and I, I, I'm not calling him a false teacher. Don't, I think he's just mistaken. I think the pendulum in his reaction to see a problem answered and solved. I'm concerned he's maybe swung too far. I don't have access to him. He's not... He's a distant person I listen to and have heard from, but I pray for his heart. Because Jesus is the final definitive answer. He is the source of all our problems, and Jesus and God has put him forward as his greatest word of all time. And there's nothing for us to add to him, and there's no reason we should be taking away from him. And the author of Hebrews wants us to know this. 
He wants us to see it. So he doesn't just spend four verses telling us this. This is going to be what he breaks out, what he teaches for the next, well, we're going to deal with it for about 20-ish weeks. Realistically, we could be in it for about 40. I broke it down the way I did because the author of Hebrews seems to present this more as a sermon or as an exhortation than a doctrinal treatise. And so instead of, I'm trying to walk through it what I believe is his intention and so we're, we're trying to walk through it in a way that we deal with the big ideas and not just get down in every word and seek to answer every little. We, we could come back and do that at some point, but that's not necessarily what I think we need to do. The reality is this. The reality is this. There is no other word for us to be listening for. There is no other way for us to walk. And the author of Hebrews wants us to know it. He wants his readers to see and hear God speak. Now, and I, I think that, in fact, that is where we need to start because that's really where the author starts. God has spoken. Look at verse 1. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. God has always been making himself, his will, his ways. He has always been expressing them in this world we live in. In fact, had he never spoken, there would be no world for us to live in. Our God is not silent. Our God speaks. That by itself would be so easy to just pass by and not recognize the supremacy and the beauty and the majesty of it. And we just move on and and not think about this, but God speaks and he has always been speaking. The very first chapter of the Bible opens on a world formless and void that God fills by speaking. When he says in Genesis 1-3, let there be light and what happens? Light shines. God speaks and the created order, the creation that he has brought to be had no choice but to be. God spoke to Adam and Eve, the first man and woman he created. He commanded them to do certain things, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, eat from all these plants and and, and all these trees, the fruit of the trees, and enjoy it all except for one. So he gave, gave them multiple positive commands, do these things, and one negative command, don't do these, don't, don't do this one thing, don't eat from this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But what did they do when they heard the serpent's word? They decided to, to listen to that word and go another way than to listen to the word they'd been given by God. God has spoken. At the heart of all of our struggles, at the heart of all of our issues is the fact that God has spoken and we've listened to another word. We're trying to go another way. But God Our God, our creator God has spoken. God spoke to Adam and Eve. God God continued to speak. He didn't didn't become silent all of a sudden when Adam and Eve disobeyed and he sent them out of the garden and, and they no longer enjoyed the intimate personal fellowship with him. God continued to speak. God continued to speak. He spoke to Noah, instructed Noah to build an ark and build it to certain specifications, load it with specific animals in a specific way. And bring his family on as well. After the flood, God spoke to Noah, entering into a covenant with him and all of creation that he would never destroy the world in that way again. 
promising that so long as the earth lasts, that he would ensure that it continued to last. Fast forward to Genesis chapter 11. Let me, let me bring this out. Let me, I think this is important before we move on to this. In speaking to Noah, in entering into the covenant with Noah, and, and, and telling him, hey, here's the rainbow. I'm not going to de- destroy the earth in this way. He gives Noah the same or very similar commands that he had given to Adam and Eve. There was some variation. But he tells him, go, fill the earth, be fruitful, multiply, spread out, enjoy all that I've created, essentially. Then he gives them some instruction about the food they're to eat. Yes, they're going to eat the trees, the fruit of the trees and the, and the plants of the field, absolutely. But now he adds to it, yes, you can eat animals. But there's a reservation, there's a restriction. And, and in the same way that he showed and shared with them the abundance of his creation, he, he, he restricts one thing, don't eat animal with the lifeblood still in it. In the same way that he did with Adam and Eve, restricting one tree, he restricts from, uh, from Noah and his family and, the, and his descendants one thing. Fast forward to Genesis chapter 11 and you find a group of people who don't want to spread out on the earth. Who decide to build a city and, and, and stay there and make a name for themselves and build a tower to the heavens to find their own way to God. God has spoken. And yet these people are finding another word and another way and this time the word's from themselves. Hey, this is a better idea. This is a better plan. Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's make our own way to God. See, here's, here, here's the issue. It, it's, it's the ongoing issue that we see all the way through Scripture. And it continues to this day. We are a people who, who hear another word than the one offered by God and we think, I like that one better. And we build our, our, our metaphorical towers of Babel. As if we got a better plan. As if we've got a better way. God spoke to Abraham, entered into covenant with Abraham, promising that he, through him he would bless all nations, promising him that he would have a son in his old age. And at first he and his wife believed it, him and Sarah believed it. But he had to wait. What did he decide in getting... As, as, as he waited. Well, well, maybe he means for me to figure out another way. So he and his wife get together and begin to talk. And what do they decide? Hey, maybe you should have this handmaiden, this servant girl. They come up with a new plan. They listen to their own word rather than his. And yet God continues to speak. God spoke to Moses, entered into covenant with the nation of Israel through his, through, through his prophet Moses. We're told in the scriptures that God spoke to Moses face to face like a friend. Now imagine that. I'm assuming the first time that happens to any of us, we, we wet ourselves a little bit, right? Like that's a big deal. <laughs> Moses speaks to God face to face because God decides to speak to Moses like a friend. Shocking. (laughs) He enters into covenant with these people, and these people are so scared to hear his voice that they say, Moses, you speak. Right? This is terrifying to us. Moses, you tell us what God said. (laughs) 
So they enter into covenant. Yep, we're going to be your people. We're going to obey your word. We're going to follow your commands, essentially, is what's going on. But you follow this process through. And the book of Judges shows us over and over how God's covenant people found a different word to listen to and a different way to walk as a result. And over and over and over, God spoke to his judges to reach his people and deliver them from the their choices, their decisions led them to. God has spoken and has been speaking at many times and in many ways. We didn't even get to the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, even the minor prophets, Malachi, all, all, these, all these small books at the end of the Old Testament, all the way through the Old Testament, we hear God speak. He spoke to the likes of Elijah. Now, when I think of God's voice, I imagine James Earl Jones, like a deep, booming voice. He spoke to Elijah in a still, small whisper. God speaks and has always been speaking. The whole Old Testament records these various ways in which God spoke. He made it audible in his voice to some. He spoke in visions and in dreams to others. He spoke through people to other people. He spoke to prophets so that they could proclaim his word to his people. God has always been speaking. In many, most, I would suggest, maybe the vast majority of God's people never heard him speak. He spoke to some so that all could hear. And it struck me as I was thinking about this and studying it and considering it, here we are. (laughs) Oh, I'd love to hear God speak, man. If God spoke, if, if I heard him say something out loud, then I'd know what to do. If you need to hear a voice, just read the word out loud. Right? He has spoken. And the vast majority of Christians in history didn't hear him speak. They found his voice in his word. That's why he recorded it. That's why he inspired people to write it down so that we could continue to hear him speak. And it would no longer be able to be tainted by the opinion, uh, uh, the, the opinions and the perspectives of, a, of another people. That history would show us that his word has been sustained. We know by, 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 by simply looking at and doing textual criticism that we read the words that were recorded in history. This is God's word. You want to hear him speak, read it out loud. Brothers and sisters, God has been speaking. This is magnificent. This, this by itself is mind-blowing. The one who had the power to say, let there be light, and light had no choice but to shine, has condescended to speak to the likes of you and me. It's majestic. It's it's, it's radical. It would behoove us to listen to it, to not accept another word, to not go another way, to not look to some answer for our problems let's look to God and his word God has spoken but but there is one way he has spoken that stands out among all the others Jesus is his greatest word he is his greatest word God speaking into the world it's always been powerful always been awe-inspiring it's been earth shaping literally earth shaping his word has been culture building his word has been 
(laughs) But there's one way that stands out above all the others. Jesus. Jesus. The point the author's making here is not to diminish what God spoke in other ways. Don't misunderstand. He is not saying, hey, Jesus is is great and all these other ways are, 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 are not so great. He's not seeking to diminish that in any way. He's taking and saying, God has spoken. Look at how many ways that He has spoken to us, that He's revealed Himself to us, that He's shown Himself to us. And He's not setting the bar low. He's setting the bar high. God has spoken. And He's building upon this greatness to show just how great it is that He has spoken to us now through Jesus. Jesus is His greatest Word. God's Word has always been powerful, awe-inspiring, worship-worthy. It is literally world-shaping, but His greatest expression of of Himself, His greatest proclamation of His will, His clearest and costliest communication to us about Himself, His will and His way, comes to us in the life of His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't reveal the failure of these ways. He doesn't reveal the the second-class nature of God's speaking in these ways. Jesus' greatness comes and fulfills all of these words. Now, He is greater because these made promises. He brings fulfillment. And the author of Hebrews spends the next several verses showing us and proving His point. He spends the next several chapters proving it even in greater detail. But let's just spend our time here looking at seven things that He says in these first four verses. Beginning in verse 2. In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things. Jesus is heir of all things. Everything the Father owns belongs to His Son. So when we feel like we're in need, where do we turn? Where do we turn? When we feel like we're we're, we're, we're not having, we we can't sustain ourselves, we're going to provide for ourselves, we don't have all we want, where do we turn? Absolutely. Absolutely. He owns the, the, the cattle on a thousand hills. It all belongs to Him. He's the heir of all things. This speaks to His authority. This speaks to His position in the world. It imputes ownership. But over and over we hear this. We feel this. If somebody's going to provide for me, it's got to be me. If somebody's going to take care of me, it's got to be me. Jesus is the heir of, he's the owner. He's the, he, he's the one with authority. Jesus is the creator of all things. Not only is Jesus the heir of it, not only does he own it all, not only does he have authority, he created it all. So when we have questions about design and how things should function and what things should look like, where, are we, where, where should we be turning? Jesus. This is, this is the, the, the apostle Apostle John, he, he picked up on this idea. He was inspired to write these words himself. John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. If it doesn't exist, it's because God, through Jesus, didn't create it. If it does exist, it's because God, through Jesus, did created nothing exists that jesus wasn't intimately involved in creating and designing and determining this is the way it's supposed to work paul would later emphasize this magnificent truth in his letter to the colossians 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. So if we're struggling, who to, who to turn to, where to look for truth, where, where, how are we supposed to figure this stuff out? Where are we going to look? But the do- designer of all things, the God who speaks, everything exists because of him. It's designed according to him. You might think of it in a very simple, very small and maybe not the best illustration, but I think at least gives us a picture. You want to give your, your kids a gift. You want, to, you want to give them something that's special and that they'll remember. So instead of just going to the store and buying a, buying a stuffed animal for them, you take them to build a bear. Right? And they go in and they receive this gift from you. It's almost like what's happening here. God the Father, sovereign over all creation, through His Son, has him build the thing that he's going to be the heir of, that he's going to receive from his father. I dare say his blood-bought bride and the created world that we now exist in is a little bit bigger, a little bit better, a little bit more special than a -a build-a-bear that you might bring your kids to. But here is our father in heaven through his son saying, he created the very things I was going to give him as my heir jesus is the heir of all things he is the creator of all things we continue it in verse three he is the radiance of god's glory it says he is he is this this is a speaking not just of what he's done or or his position in the world this is speaking to his identity he is the radiance of god's glory well, to really grasp this, we have to understand glory. What is glory? What does that mean when people speak of glory? It's like one of these Christian words we throw around a lot. We don't really know how to define it, but we kind of know how to use it. I appreciate, some people talk about weight, some people talk about light, some people talk about worthiness, and, and all of those things hit at it and get at it. <clears throat> I appreciate John Piper's definition, or one way I've heard him define this on a number of different occasions he speaks of it in these terms, that it is, it is God's glory is the going public of God's infinite worth. It's the, it's the demonstration. It's the expression of his eternal attributes. It's all of his excellencies, all of his perfections, all of his, his, his eternality being on display for all the world to see. Now, here, here's, here's what we need to understand. Here's what we need to see. God's glory is demonstrated in the created order around us right? The psalmist tells us that the heavens declare what? The glory of God, right? Day to day, they pour, pour forth speech. They honor him. They demonstrate his glory. We look around. It's, it's impossible for us to deny, if we're honest with ourselves, it's impossible for us to deny, honestly deny the existence of God when his created order is screaming out every day, crying out every day to his glory. But, but in Christ, there is a clear expression of that glory. In Christ, we see, we, 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 we see the radiance of it in a way that it was never expressed before. We get to experience it. <laughs> if, if, we, if we need to comprehend and, and grasp and, and, and see in some tangible form the glory of God, we can look to the world. We are not to the, to the world as a culture, but we can look to the created order. But we can get a clearer picture by looking at his son, who's demonstrated 
and shown the radiance of that glory, the greatness of that glory, the greatness and worthiness of, uh, of, of his worthiness of majesty, his holiness, all of his perfections, all of his eternal nature. It's all been shown to us. This radiant glory has all been shown to us in Jesus Christ. Jesus, he goes on in verse 3, Jesus is the exact imprint of God's nature. Again, a, a, position of, or a point of identity. This is who Jesus is, the exact imprint of God's nature. He doesn't, God, God doesn't have a body that we can see. That he, he doesn't have a, 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 um, a physical presence that we can walk up and touch. And so when we think of God, it's very difficult for us to understand what He's like and, and who He is except by His Word. And then, and then, He sends His Son who's, who's, who's got the same nature as He does, who's got the same will as He does, who holds the same and similar identity to Him. And He says, now you go and you show them who I am, and Jesus comes. This is so intrinsic. This is it's so important for us to see that when, when challenged by one of His apostles, the Apostle Philip, just show us the Father. That's all we need. Just show us the Father. If you'll just show us the Father, that will be the answer we need. Jesus answered to him in John 14, 9. Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And again, to the Colossians, Paul wrote, he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus makes visible what is invisible. He makes us able to know what we couldn't know before. He makes us able to see and experience and taste and touch what we couldn't experience and see and taste and touch before. If we want to know God, if we want to get to know him and walk with him intimately, we do this through his son. If we want to see God, we look to Jesus and we don't take our eyes off of Jesus. He is God's clearest expression of himself in this world. And the author goes on. Jesus is the universe by his power. The word translated uh, uh, upholds in verse 3. Let's go back to it so you can see it. He says, he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The, the, the word translated upholds, it, it, it speaks to sustenance. It speaks to keeping it together, to making it work and making it last, holding it all together. He keeps it working. He keeps the earth spinning and the days and the, and, and the, and, and, and the seasons flowing. We go again, we go back to, to the word that was promised to Noah. In Genesis chapter 8, verse 22, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. Now we could, we could just generally say, oh, well, God does this. But the writer of Hebrews tells us this is Jesus by the word of his power. Now, I don't know how to describe that power, the power it takes to make sure that everything in this, in this world keeps functioning the way it was intended to. I don't want to deny our responsibility to take care of what we've been given in this world. But as we, as we think about all the things that we're, we're hearing around us, all this talk about green energy, green this, green new deals, green, 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 green. Who's going to sustain this place? Who's going to make the seasons flow? And there's at least a perspective. One should be considered. 
that even as we try to be green, we're still doing a lot of damage to the earth in the ways we mine it and look for lithium and things like that to build these batteries. And then what happens when they're gone and they're no longer good because they only last a few years? What do we do with them then? And, and, and what's the long-term effects of putting, getting rid of them? I'm not suggesting we shouldn't be trying and we shouldn't be working at it. I'm not suggesting we don't have responsibility. But where does our hope in this lie? The one who sustains, who upholds the creation by the word of his power. This is the greatness of God's word in Jesus Christ. And he's not done. The writer of Hebrews goes on in verse 3 that he is the, the, the uh, let, let's go back to it just so that you can see it in the scripture before I jump in. He says, He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down. Jesus is the only sufficient purification for sins. This this phrase adds a dimension to Jesus' identity and his role in the world, his purpose in the world. It adds to it this divine mission. Jesus came to live a perfect life, die a sacrificial death, and raise in victory to extend eternal life to any who would believe in him. He did this. He's the only one that's been able to offer this purification sufficiently that it only ever had to be offered once. It is significant. We're actually going to deal with this much more in detail in the weeks to come. But it's significant that the author of Hebrews writes that he sat down. He's now seated at the right hand of the the majesty on high. He is waiting for the command to come and get us. He is no longer continuing the work of purification because that work is finished. The priests of the Old Covenant, they didn't get to rest. Every day before God, making sacrifice for themselves and sacrifice for the people because people keep sinning. And the priests are not sinless. But Jesus is a greater word. He's a greater offering of sacrifice. He is the only sufficient purification for our sins. And yet, where do we turn? Where do we look? Where are we told by the world this is what you need to do about your sin and your guilt and your shame? Oh, you need to forgive yourself. No, you need to turn to Jesus to find His forgiveness. Oh, you need to do this, that, or the other. No, you need to turn to Jesus and find His grace and His mercy. He is the only sufficient purification for sins. If you just say enough prayers... If you just attend church enough, if you just, if you just make yourself clean enough. This is last, uh, last Friday night, you know, we have secret church and David Platt does that. And I won't go into all of uh, There's an example that he used that has stuck with me and I've wrestled with. Makes, it breaks my heart for this nation and, and, and I don't know that we can continue to call ourselves a place where the gospel is prevalent. He's talking about this pastor friend of his that can continue to tell people, well, if you're just good enough, then that's not the gospel. That is a lie. You can't be good enough. But in Christ, the purification is complete. And Jesus says to you, saint, holy one, you're a child of the king. You're adopted into his family. You're holy and you're blameless. 
Jesus is the only sufficient purification for sins, and so why don't we turn to Him? He is this great Word. And finally, in verse 4, the author writes, having become as much superior to angels, this is really setting up the passage that's, that's following, but it is a conclusion to this introduction. Having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent. Jesus has the name above all names. As if these previous traits weren't enough, the author of Hebrews gives us not just this, this, this role, this purpose, this mission, this identity, this, this, this uh, ownership of the world. He shows us in the name of Jesus. The beauty and the magnificence of Jesus. He has inherited a name that's above every name. Jesus is, as, as, his name, as, as his name means, he is the savior of his people. He is sovereign king. He is perfect priest. He is divine prophet. He is the son of God and the son of man. These are all names. These are all things that he has been shown to be in the scripture. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the Lamb of God who came to take away our sin. He is our Lord and God who we have every right and who would, we would be so much better off if we would just bow on our knees before Him in worship and devotion. As Paul noted to the church in Philippi after speaking to Jesus, humbling Himself to the point of death on a cross, he writes in verse 9-11 through 11 of chapter 2, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And so brothers and sisters, let me encourage you that we join in this symphony, in this cacophony of worship that we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Join with Thomas on our knees before him, no longer needing proof of sticking our hand in the hole of it on his side or seeing the, the, the wounds upon his hands or his feet. And know this risen Lord is our God. God has spoken. And Jesus is the greatest word, his greatest word of all time. So we preach his name and no other. I want to do this gently. In every, every, at every point, every time this conversation comes up. But as I have been called to shepherd this church, and anyone really that I have opportunity to shepherd, every time I hear someone saying, this is the answer, whether it's liberal or conservative, whether, whether it's it's left or right, any of, the, any of the ways we decide, whether divide, whether it's red or blue, I will always stand in front of them and I will say, no, that's not the answer. I'm not saying that we don't have decisions to make there. And I don't, I'm not saying that we don't have wisdom to apply there. But that is not where we start. Jesus. Jesus. Keep your eye on Jesus. We preach his name. He is the only way. We, we call on each other to believe and trust in him. You don't need a new situation. You need a greater faith that might lead to a new situation. It's, it's, it's astounded me over and over in the scripture how many times we see God change the hearts of people to endure in the situation rather than situations. 
Don't misunderstand. He does change situations. After 400 years of them crying out, he lead Israel out of Egypt. After 400 years of them crying out. How much do you think they grew in a desire for God in that 400 years? I'm guessing at least some. We call on each other to trust in him. And we submit, so we submit. Not, 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 not only do we preach his name, not only do we trust in him, we submit our lives in obedience to him. He is the author and founder of our faith, the writer of Hebrews is going to say. He is, the, he is um, God's greatest word. And what he says, as creator of, and designer of all things, as heir of all things, as our savior, as our sufficient, um, uh, sufficient uh, purification, We submit our lives in obedience to him. What he commands, we're called to do. Brothers and sisters, this isn't restrictive. This isn't harmful. This isn't in, it's not hateful. It's us living in light of the greatest word God has ever spoken. Jesus. Let's pray.